By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf, and as always, I'm joined by... Adam from Adam and Golf. This episode of The Sweet Spot is brought to you by our friends at the Indoor Golf Shop. They are the place to go online for setting up a golf simulator in your home or business. They sell all the major brands of launch monitors like Foresight, SkyTrack, Unicor, and FlightScope. And they make awesome enclosures, mats, nets, screens, pretty much anything you need for your indoor studio. And if you need help, you can talk to their experts. You can ask for Gerald or Hunter if you call them directly. They can answer your questions about the different systems you're looking at, how they could fit in your garage, media room, or basement. So thanks for their support, and you can check them out at shopindoorgolf.com. This week, we have part two of our conversation with Dr. Sasha McKenzie, and we're going to pick up right where we left off. When you were talking earlier about like a John Rahm has forged shaft lean impact, and then you said how a technique like that can then, I suppose, get away with more noise within the system. What are some other things that pros exhibit that allow that then? Yeah, so one thing I've seen has to do with where the center of mass of the club is. This sounds so obtuse. Uh, where the center of mass of the club is relative to the force vector being applied to the grip by the golfer is in transition. So I had this <laughs> baby speak. <laughs> yeah, everybody likes to say laid off, but it's not really laid off because you can have a very upright swing like a Bubba Watson and still have this relationship. Maybe a quick story on how I stumbled upon this during my PhD thesis. So I was developing at the time did not have a high-end motion capture system to study shaft flexibility. And even at the time, the data was a little bit messier than it is today. The motion systems now are really low, uh, really high measurement resolution and high frame rates and everything's awesome. So I was going to answer the question of, you know, uh, can you customize shaft stiffness to a person's swing to increase clubhead speed with a 
this forward dynamics model. So you get a model that swings the exact same way every time. Let's switch in and out shaft stiffness and see what happens to club bit speed. Make the model swing differently. Does it need a different shaft stiffness? The answer to that is just as an aside is that you're probably not going to increase club bit speed with a different shaft. The faster the club head kicks forward, the more it's going to slow down the hands and the overall speed of the club doesn't change that much. But I had this model where I have these muscles that would turn on to produce the motions of the golf swing. So if you could picture like a really simple model to start out with, just one hand on the club, the torso rotates, the lead arm abducts off the torso. You've got pronation, supination of the lead arm, internal external rotation to help square the face, and then the wrist on cocks. Very simple. And I was like, all right, is this model working? And so I would turn on all the muscles. Just the first time I was like, all right, got this thing built, codes, you know, crazy complicated. And I wanted to see if it's even functioning like it should. So turn on all the muscles at the start of the downswing. I don't have my genetic algorithm written yet, so I can't time, you know, optimize the timing of the muscles. So you see the torso starts turning, the lead arm comes off the the torso, the wrist starts uncocking and the model starts supinating. So that would be like making a slight over the top move. Can you guys picture that? Like kind of like the club coming on top of the swing plane. You need that motion at some point in the swing. Usually it happens at the bottom. It's one of the fastest motions that the golfer's body makes is that late supination of the, that's like rotating your palms. So if you're sitting down, rotating your palms, so it faces the sky, right? That's supination motion of the lead forearm. And so the face starts closing in this swing, And then it kind of like gets near impact and the face completely whips the other way around and is now facing, the face starts opening, opening, opening. And now it's so open that it's facing 180 degrees from the targeted impact. So like, it's like this guy's broken his forearm, right? And I'm like, oh man. And I've got literally with this model, if I printed out the code on eight and a half sheets by 11 sheets of paper, it would fill a 10 by 10 room. I had to write programs to create the equations uh, anyway, I just want to like interject there. Like that sounds like an absolute nightmare for someone like me. I don't know how you have the fortitude to stick with stuff like that. I'd be like, I just break the whole thing. I'd be like, I'm yeah, done. It was a nightmare. <laughs> it was very deflating because, you know, when I was doing the, my PhD thesis, I'm not strong in math. I didn't know what I needed to know to write the model. So I'd be reading a math book and then, I, you know, I'd finish a math book, you know, over a couple of weeks and I'd be like, this wasn't the math I needed to know. This isn't going to help me. <laughs> anyway, oh, God. dark days. <laughs> so this was really depressing because I'm like, this thing isn't working. So literally for three weeks, I'm trying to figure out, you know, are these torques working in the wrong directions? And then I realize that no, everything's working. It's just that the, the passive, what I call the, and this isn't my term, they use it a lot in robotics, the passive dynamics of the system are overcoming the muscular forces that the golfer is applying. My little golfer model was applying in the swing. So an example that I would use of that is if you look at someone with an above knee prosthetic limb, so their legs cut off above the knee, so they've got no muscles crossing their knee joint, they can still swing their lower leg, right? They can still walk. Their lower leg still rotates, even though there's no muscles crossing the knee joint. If the forces that are being applied from the femur onto the lower leg don't pass through the center of mass of the lower leg, then it will cause the lower leg to rotate. It'll create a torque. Well, the same thing happens in the golf swing in a 3D sense. So if you get that center of mass, and I'm going to use the word plane, but really I'm talking about force vector. If you get that center of mass above or below the swing plane, it's going to want to work 
in a direction towards the swing plane. Another example that I use is water skiing behind a speedboat. You always want to get pulled into the wake of the speedboat. If you swing out to the right, there's stuff you have to do out there with the skis, applying forces to the water to stay out there. If you just pull hard on the rope and go straight up, you get pulled back into the wake. This is happening in the golf swing as well. So if you get that center mass of the club below that force vector in transition, then you're going to get some facilitation of the face squaring coming in impact. If you get it above, then it's going to make it more challenging. So Adam's question was, is there something you notice that is common among good players? And that's it. So my model demonstrated this. I did some theoretical experiments with my model and then kind of moved up in the the golf world where I had access to looking at, you know, at tour, working with tour players and getting asked to analyze their data and doing a lot of stuff with, um, with Phil Cheatham and people like John Sinclair and now having access to hundreds of tour player swings. I said, okay, well, let's see how many of the tour players do this. And virtually all of them have this characteristic with the exception of maybe one or two out of a hundred, no matter what their swing looks like, in transition, they get that center of mass below that force vector they're applying. So they get a little bit of this passive torque helping to square the face at the bottom. So this isn't a major speed generator, but it allows you to create the same speed with less effort. It feels like you don't need to work to square the face as much. That's how I would summarize it. You're still doing stuff to square the face. There's no doubt about it, but you need to work a little bit harder. And, and I believe that the vast majority of people that slice, that feel like no matter, they, they try to close the face harder, <laughs> but it actually never closes. It's always open. They're getting that center of mass above that force vector early in the downswing. And you can really feel this if you make single arm, lead arm only swings. So is this like, I'm trying to imagine this, is this like, if you're looking at the club head, it's like going down and behind you a little bit versus up and in front of you? I'm trying to envision what this would look like. Is this like kind of shallowing the shaft? Is it that discussion? Yeah, like an extreme version of it, like it would be, would be like Matt Wolf. Another person that's amazing at it, but looks very different, it would be Brooke Henderson. She's just had a couple of swings pop up on Twitter. You watch her work, that center of mass behind her in transition. There's so many people that do it. Ryan Moore would be an extreme example of someone who really lays it down. But then you've got uh, people, someone who, who has this, some people who have the strongest relationship, but maybe even looks like they're over top is like Brendan DeYoung. You don't see him around much on tour, but looking at his data, he looks over the top, but he actually creates this, this relationship quite remarkably. And some of the tour players that haven't done it struggle a lot with the driver. I've worked quite a lot over the last five or six years with tour players that have hit a rough patch with the driver. And this is a relationship that tends to get messed up. You, you can't see it on video, they can feel it. Uh, they feel something's wrong because you can feel those forces and torques interacting between you and the club and they feel something keeping the face open. You know, often you'll get a player who will made a swing change, maybe because of an injury, maybe because they want it. Hey, we're, I don't like the ball flight. I'm looking, let's strengthen or weaken the grip. And okay, that's maybe in isolation. That would be great. But then that puts the club in a different position at the top. And now all of a sudden that's changing the dynamics of this relationship. And now all of a sudden they're struggling to hit a draw. They like to see the ball go from right to left. And working with John Sinclair has been amazing because he is fanatical 
about collecting data the same way every single time. So I can look at a player from six years ago who was, you know, say uh, 20th in strokes gained off the tee with the driver, could play a draw, could play a fade. And now all of a sudden they can't feel the face, they're having trouble finding it. They drop to, you know, 150th. Well, I can pull up those swings and take a look at this variable in particular, something we look at quite frequently and say, oh yeah, okay, this is something that's showing up there. They've kind of lost this relationship in transition. Their swing might look aesthetically amazing, but uh, they can feel that something's not quite right. And a lot of times it's this. That's to answer your questions or something that pros tend to do that, that amateurs don't. So the way I, I kind of visualize this, I know there's a difference between how something looks and how something is being forced, the forces you can't necessarily see. But, you know, if you take a, a golfer mid downswing, for example, and they've got the shaft at a certain angle, which most people call plane, but that's a, for a different discussion. So whatever angle the shaft is at, if they are pulling down steeper than that, then effectively the, the club center mass is shallower than that force vector, right? Have I just made things worse? <laughs> well, it made sense to me, but... Yeah, I tried to get create a visual, kind of like the water skier effect, but if your hands were the boat and your boat is pulling down and the water skier is more tipped below that wake... Uh, so in a more laid off position than that. So, but I mean, effectively, you could have someone in a more stood up position, right? And the, with the club shaft and they're just pulling more behind them. You got it. And that would get the same, the, that would get the same relationship, but it probably wouldn't create good impact dynamics. There's lots of things I've done to validate this. This is the reason why you see when you pull it, why does the face all of a sudden square? Because what you've done is you've, you've like, okay, well, if the club's here, I'm going to completely change the direction the force vector is acting. Now that's going to completely change my swing plane, but it allows me to square the face, right? So it really explains why you get, okay, given where the club is, I can decide to change this force vector, which is going to change the swing direction. It's going to let me to square the face to that swing direction, but I'm going to hit a straight pull. So why you get big slices and big pulls going together. You kind of got two options with where you've decided to move that club. Because you got to hit the ball and you have to have a certain swing direction, you're constrained. The window that you have to apply different forces is quite tight. So to me, it's a lot easier just to put the club in a different position at the start of the downswing than it is to try and change the force vectors. You know what I mean? You can do both. Another validation that I did with Stan Utley, who's an amazing short game player, I had him hit 75, 50-yard pitches with two hands and with one hand. And what's interesting is when you use two hands, you're, you're strong enough that the torques we can apply to the club, we can, with a pitch shot, you know, 50 yards, you can override those passive dynamics. So he would keep the center of mass above that force factor with pitches. Very common for good pitchers of the golf ball to do this. They, they want to feel that they're manipulating the, the closing of the face. They're under control. Makes sense to me. As soon as he would hit one-handed pitch shots, and the, the, this guy can hit 50 yarders. He's like John Daly. You know, you've seen John Daly do that where it's like, doesn't matter, one hand, two hand, these, just these nip, nippy little 50 yarders. Even though the outcome's the same, you can see that he puts the club in a completely different position relative to that force factor because now he's not strong enough with just that lead arm in the club to close the face with muscular torque. He has to use these passive dynamics. The best thing people can do listening to feel this is to lead arm only, grab the club, go up, pause at the top, put the club in a, a vertical position. Like if you can picture Matt Wolf, 
right? And you go, all right, well, I've already kind of closed the face and then go, right, I'm going to swing down at the ball from here as hard as I can. You will feel the face open. You will feel the face want to open. It feels really violent at impact as well. It feels like the club's all over the place at impact. Yes. And now what we've done is we've exaggerated what I call the moment arm. How, how, you know, the distance from that center of mass to the force vector. We've exaggerated that, but at relatively low speeds. And you get this violent, like you say, you feel like, whoa, what is closing this face on me? Right. But in reality, when you, and that's your club's probably going 50 miles an hour. But now you swing a driver at 120 miles an hour. The forces you're applying are much, much bigger. So that means the moment arm can be smaller, but it can still have that violent effect. We've, I think we've all probably had that feeling where it's like, whoa, what held that face open? You know, what is this mystical thing that felt like there was nothing I could do to close the face, right? I'm sure some golfers, unfortunately, have that every time they take a swing. Yeah, and it's this relationship. So basically, those slices are fighting at the bottom, huge passive forces as much as they try and twist it they're just not going to overcome those huge forces yeah exactly how early or i should say how late does this relationship stop so you're saying you know in transition the center of mass of the club is going to be more behind that force vector when does that relationship change then is it just a momentary time in at the top of the swing or for most golfers it switches by the time they get to pros uh, shaft vertical in the downswing. So at that point, it's gone from the center mass has already started to kick out above that force vector. But that's just something that would happen, right? That's not something that's going to be as conscious, that one. Yeah. And this isn't something, you know, so it's interesting working with John Sinclair and I have a good relationship. I'll re, you know, run the analysis, relay the information. And he's good at working with coaches and he works with his own tour players. He works with Paul Bergen right now who has had a great tournament in, at the Sony, maybe a top 10 even. Anyway, but sometimes I'll end up working directly with the coach that you know has brought their player to John and they're like, all right, well, what should I tell my player to do? And that that's like, I'm like there's no, this is where this, I need to have a conversation with the player about what they're feeling. It's not like, oh, do this because everything is, is so mucked up together. You know, you, you can't, you can't just say, well, do this and you will get X. It's this convoluted mess of you change one thing and nine other things change, but you need to know what the player is feeling. You need to see the ball flight. Yeah. It's more about feeling than anything else, really. If you feel like, hey, in that shot, did it feel like you had to work to close the face like really hard? Did it it feel like it stayed out? You know, what were you feeling? And lining that up then with, you know, and analyzing the kinetics and being like, okay, you felt this and it looked like this, show the graph, what did you feel? And kind of recalibrating them to to get them to understand what, what their feelings, what their intents are in the swing, what results in creating this positive relationship. Why is that shallowing move, and maybe you've already answered this, why would it be more repeatable or is it? It certainly doesn't show up with wedges. You know, I guess the only thing that I could think of is that it requires two things I could think of, I guess. You know, it's been a while since I've talked about this, but it requires a little bit less muscular effort to get the same club head speeds. You're kind of, if you're worrying about applying force to the grip to get club head speed, it's nice that in your effort to do that, the face is going to square up with as little conscious effort from you as possible. That seems helpful. It would seem 
unhelpful. If you were doing stuff that was causing the face to open by the force application, the way you're trying to increase speed, and you had to do something else trying to close the face that was at odds with increasing speed, right? Those two things are kind of fighting each other. You have to do two different things. One thing to generate speed and then another thing to square the face. And they're in opposition to each other. It's kind of like goes back to that baby boot thing that we talked about six days ago, it feels like now. If you are, I, I always felt the tiger when he would get stuck was right on the edge. You know, it's like you're you're riding in the wake. It looks aesthetic, but sometimes you, you know, you go to the left, sometimes you go to the right, and then it's it's really tough to do the opposite. Be way better if you always started on one side of the wake. You know, so if you're trying to go off a ramp, you're doing a ski jump and it's on the, the right-hand side of the wake, right? It'd be nice to get over to the left-hand side of the wake and then as you're coming up to the ramp, cross over, hit the ramp and away you go, right? It's tougher if you're in the wake and you're like, all right, I'm going to pull myself out just at the right time to try and hit that ramp. I never go the other way. I never go left, right? I only just always pull myself out into the wake towards the side that the ramp's on. And what happens if I pull myself out a little bit too soon? Well, now I'm trying to do stuff to keep pulling myself out of the wake to try and like get out to the ramp, but the boat's sucking me back into the wake. And I always felt when Tiger got stuck, I liked his 97 to 99 swing where he was long and across the line. So we'd start down and that's like being on the ramp side of the wake, way away from the ramp, right? You're across the line. And then as you start down, you swing out over to the left-hand side. And then as you come in at impact, you swing through the wake and hit the ramp. If you're laid off, you're kind of long and laid off, not like a, a John Rahm or say a Duffner, Jason Duffner, short and laid off. I think that works. If you're long and laid off, then you're in that left-hand side of the wake. You pull hard down on the shaft. You kick out to the right-hand side too early. And then as you're coming into the ball, you're, as you're coming into the ramp, trying to go over the ramp, you get sucked back <laughs> into the wake. And you've got a couple of options. You can, as you realize, okay, you're coming down, you're like, all right, I'm, I'm already way outside the wake here on the right-hand side. I could stop swinging, shut the body down, let go of the rope, and then I get the face closing and the, the kind of the duck hook, or I could keep swinging hard and block it out to the right. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, I always felt that aesthetically trying to be perfectly on plane, keep that, you know, be right in the line that's, you know, and this is being on plane is different from this, but it can result in the same effect. Well, it seems like the opposite of it is when you see like, I don't know if I'm going to describe it properly. It's like a golfer like throws the club out in front of them and they're just like dead. There's no way for it to get back into a functional position on the downswing. Uh, I'm thinking of like, if you freeze frame someone on their downswing uh, on the back of it, you're seeing like the club head is like, very far away from them versus I think what you're describing is like a little more tucked inside, I guess. I don't know if we like use that, that under the plane definition, but that's kind of what I've seen when I look at certain golfer swings. It's like they throw the club outside of it. And then I guess that what you're describing that wake pulls them back in and then it's a mess. Yeah. I never thought even the commentators would say that the guys that got really laid off, you know, the, the halfway down, that had the club really deep, I never felt like they ever got stuck. Those weren't the guys that got stuck, you know, like, mm -hmm. yeah, like Sergio, Kim's, the club head is so far 
behind him halfway down. He never gets stuck. Yeah, At least I never seen it. Him. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it was the guys that, you know, maybe got it on top too soon. And then it's the way that they were applying that force to the grip was actually creating this passive torque that was sucking the club back into the swing plane, keeping that face from, from being squared up. That's what to me, the feeling of stuck meant or was. So how I'm visualizing this, just to kind of recap that and get my visual out there, is if you've got a boat going from the top of the screen to the bottom of the screen, the speedboat is pulling the water skier down from top of the screen to the bottom of the screen. And you've got a ramp on the right-hand side of that wake. And that it's that golfer's goal to hit that ramp. Well, they could make a kind of S-curve through the wake and hit the ramp. That would be more like a Tiger Woods early. Yep. Tiger Woods, you know, where he's a little across the line and then it shallows. Then it comes back around. Brooke Henderson. Or you could have- Fred Couples. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Matt Wolf, guys yep. like that, yeah. Or you could have a golfer who's more laid off, like a Garcia or John Rahm, someone like that, who's just on the left side of that wake as he starts down and goes through it. So I suppose you've got to almost, it's all about the timing, right? When they go through the right wake and hit that ramp and you've got to make sure they're in the right position, depending on how they're applying forces and how long their backswing is and things like that. I suppose a general rule for that might be, I suppose this is a little too general, but longer swingers of the club might be more across the line or at least able to get away with that more. Whereas sh if you're a very short swinger of the club, like John Rahm, you probably got to be in a more laid off position, I would imagine, right? Exactly, John Rahm. Jason Duffner was, uh, I love Jason Duffner's swing. He, it's maybe just, he doesn't have the genetics of a Tony Finnell or a John Rahm to generate 120 mile hour club head speed from that position. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we've probably thoroughly confused the hell out of everyone <laughs> at this point. <laughs> I mean, what we're all picturing our heads, hopefully that's somewhat translated over. That's interesting to me. One-handed swings is the thing to practice. And the last visual that I will give, the swing plane in the water skier analogy is like a big buzz saw behind the boat, cutting the water, vertical in the water. That is the equivalent of the golfer's swing plane. For people who are confused by this, I do have some modules on this in Next Level Golf. It's in the, the swing plan, Next Level Golf, the shallowing. And I, you know, there's more visuals to this. I'm going to talk about the one-handed swing and give credit to Sasho for that, for that. So, yeah, I mean, it's all of this stuff is probably best done visually. And so I, I know it's, it's <laughs> yeah. kind of hard to do it over a podcast. I think we've done a decent job. Two hours <laughs> in the disclaimer, we should have done this visually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's challenging your imagination, but no, it's an incredibly complicated topic. I think Sasha has done a, a good job of explaining it. Definitely. I mean, I'm not trying to bash you, Sasha. I oh, loved your explanation. I mean, right. make, it's very interesting to me. I do have one more request. I mean, we, we've been talking your head off for a while. Hopefully I have a little bit more time for one more question. Here's a concept that people could probably wrap their head around, no pun intended, based on what I'm about to say. I first heard about it when you went on the Hack It Out podcast with Lou Stagner, Mark Crossfield, and, and Scott Fawcett. You brought up the, and we don't have a ton of time left probably, but if you can quickly talk about the heads up putting thing. You know, everyone yeah, saw Jordan Spieth like do it. 
uh, the five to eight footers when he was in his prime. I don't think he does it anymore, but you have some research to indicate that not, not from what I understand, not all golfers, but some golfers might be better suited not looking at the ball while they putt. Yeah. So about 80% of the golfers that come through my lab with kind of a half hour introduction session, even if they've never putted heads up before, putt better heads up. And that may be do a bit to the high percentage of people that play hockey in Canada. <laughs> so what I always say to them is, hey, if you were to pass a puck, would you look down at the puck or would you look where you're passing the puck? And they look at me like I'm stupid. Like, uh, obviously, I'm going to look where I'm passing it. If you're going on a breakaway. And there's a lot more going on in hockey as well. You know, the puck's moving, you're skating, people are coming to hit you, whatever. And you would, anybody with any reasonable amount of skills, not looking down at the puck when they're going on a breakaway. They're looking at the goalie and they're looking at where they want the puck to go. You know, that probably helps being in Canada. But I know Lou Stagner followed up with some of his Twitter followers and said, hey, anybody want to do this study uh, on your own? Heads up for 10 rounds, traditional way for 10 rounds and send me your strokes gain. So legit data on a course over 10 rounds. And he had 80%. I know Mike Carroll from Fit for Golf. I think he gained a stroke with it on putting. And he's a scratch golfer, so that's significant. You're a scratch golfer, already a a good putter by his standards in terms of, you know, relative to the rest of his game. He uses uh, Mark Brody's golf metrics app. So very good data in terms of strokes gained putting. And he gains a stroke, like a stroke around on your putting. We're not talking someone who's hitting 36 putts here and then, you know, or who had a putting issue. This is a decent putter who gained a full stroke on his putting. So he's converted. (laughs) So I'm not the first person to research this. Uh, There was, granted, not great studies, but people looked at it as long as, uh, you know, 60 years ago. There's probably been about four or five studies. Uh, Bob Christine and Eric Alfenfels have published a book called Instinct Putting. I would argue that maybe I've refined it a little bit and maybe my research I've done has been a little bit tighter, but it's not, you know, new to me. And Johnny Miller putted heads up when he won the AT&T, I think it was in 86. Louis Oosthuizen's had some amazing runs putting heads up at a US Open. Spieth. Spieth. Vijay Singh's tried it. Tony Finnau's tried it. There's a lot of stigmatism around it. I think that, no doubt in my mind, there'd be a lot of tour players would putt better using it, but I think it would immediately signal that, you know, you've got some frailty in your game and you must be desperate. You really, people don't have a good sense on how how well they're putting. So you really do need to do strokes gain. Which is hard to measure because you have to get your distance on each putt and record it. Yes. There's a great iPhone app measure. It's free. I'm going to go down a tangent here now. We'll get back to heads up putting in a second, but you guys will like this. So if you went out to a fairway, shut out the lights. It was middle of the night and you're like, all right, Adam and John, I, what wedge do you guys use from 50 yards? 56, 58? Yeah, I 56. use a 60. Okay. And I'm like, all right, hit this. Uh, you, there's a spotlight down. You can see the ball. And I'm like, all right, hit this 50 yards. You'd be like, all right, no problem. Okay, now hit this one 80 yards. You'd be like, okay, I can do that. Because you've used a range finder when you play golf and you've used your simulators a bunch probably, Correct. You've got a sense in how hard. Yeah. Okay. If we dropped you down on a green and I said, all right, I want you guys to hit this putt 30 feet and there's no hole out there. You'd be like, um, well, Sasha, me and Adam play a lot of uh, simulator <laughs> we'll golf. Okay. <laughs> we play 2K. We play TGC 19 all the time and we've honed down our 25 foot strokes. Okay. So. Perfect. Most golfers. We're a weird scenario though. <laughs> most golfers have, they have no clue, include. I'm joking. You know, no one would know. I probably wouldn't know how to do it in yeah, real life either. You just have no sense. The players that I work with, this is a, uh, a skill that I have them develop. 
starting with. They, they calibrate with the iPhone apps just called Measure, where you just pull it out and hover over the ball, tap on the ball, go to the hole, tap on the hole, and it tells you how far the putt is. And so when we do practice data, I'll tell them to hit a 10-foot putt, and they'll go to a hole, they'll drop the ball down at what they think is 10 feet, then they'll check. Oh, shit, it's nine, they'll pull it back a foot. But eventually they get to within six inches. You think about how well we've calibrated to be able to look at someone and say whether they're 5'8 or 6'2", right? You could look at someone and you'd no way you'd mess that up, right? And that's six inches, but there's no way you're discerning a putt that's six inches because you just haven't, you've never calibrated to that. But if you practice that way and you get that distance down, now all of a sudden you go out in the course and you're like, I know this is 32 feet. You know how many times you've hit 32 foot putts. That's just a really important bit of information that you've internalized. And now you can go, right, it's uphill and it's into the grain way I go, but I've got my base calibration of how hard I hit a putt 32 feet because you know it. Just the same as if I had to go out right now and play without a, a range finder, <laughs> like the number of times where I laser a flag and I'm like, huh, I thought that was 60 and it's 50, you know, or vice versa. Just knowing what that distance is, the confidence to, to execute a swing is so helpful. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. And we're back. 
So it's almost like your brain is learning to connect that verbal command of 30 foot to then the force amount applied, right? Yeah, exactly. And then we take advantage of that with the rest of our game. Like, you you know, if you just, no one relies on the rise anymore to hit a 170 yard shot. You're like, okay, how far is this? Oh, it's 170. Then you've internalized what that means to you for whatever club you're hitting. It's more applicable, say, to wedges. It's almost with, with heads up putting then what how i've kind of explained it because i used to do drills where one of the drill was you look at the look at the hole bring your eyes back and actually close your eyes and then putt and then you had to say i think that is three foot short or three foot long and then you take a look and you you check it so that was one of the drills and the other one was heads up putting so this is where you get your setup then you look at the hole and you putt the ball whilst you're looking at the hole I noticed as well, a lot of people did really well with the heads up putting. The first couple that they did was was horrendous. You know, they'd usually knock it 20 foot past or something, but then they quickly managed to figure it out. And the way I, I thought of it was the brain is now learning to control the distance with the visual information. So because you're looking at the hole and then you're applying that force, those connections maybe are being learned, being made stronger. I had loads of players who were just doing that as a drill. And then they come back after a week of practicing and saying, you know what, I've actually started on the course just putting, looking at the hole because it's working so well. And I'm like, yeah, go for it. Yeah, I think the initial obstacle to learning is that we do rely on watching the distance between the ball and the putter as a gauge for how far we're going to hit the putt. And when you look up, when you don't look down at the ball, you lose that bit of information. It takes a bit of time to overcome that. But that that happens pretty quickly to the point now where if I putt heads down, it's the equivalent to if anybody's listening to this, imagine balling up a piece of paper, or looking at a trash can in the corner and saying, all right, I'm going to throw this in the trash can and then putting your head down. You're like, it just feels super awkward. If I putt with my head down now, it's like, why am I staring at this ball? I want all the information that matters is out there. It makes sense logically from an athletic perspective because, you know, uh, growing up playing every sport, whether it's basketball, tennis, you're looking at your target as you complete your motion. And in golf, you're looking at the ball while you complete your motion. Now, I don't think this would make sense on the full swing because you could probably hurt yourself maybe, but it makes sense theoretically to me. And I actually did try it. I didn't want to put it into, I tried it a few times on the practice screen. I actually drained my first three putts, I think, with it. But I was playing tournaments, so I didn't want to mess with it. But it, it caught my attention too, because I think what you had said on the on the podcast, forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth, is that players' speed control improved. Their face contact, where they struck it on the putter face, suffered, but that's not as big of a deal with the putter and the overarching gain of their speed control was the predominant factor and why they were better with this because maybe they were just engaging their athleticism and depth perception more. Is that like your main theory on this? Uh, no, there's some, some established theory. So there was a guy called Lab that showed that as soon as you take your eyes off a far target, so in my mind putting, you've got a far target, the hole near targets the ball on a straight putt. As soon as you take your eyes off that far target, your memory of that distance starts to decay exponentially. So you start to forget oh, how far away is it? Then you don't know how hard you need to hit something. The the best, most of the best normal putters, like uh, say an Aaron Baddeley, he'll be looking at, you know, the general area where he wants to start the putt. He doesn't have a specific spot that he's trying to hit it to. He just has a general area. I'm going to hit it over there. It's kind of like Rain Man, I guess. But 
he will start to pull the putter back before his head even gets back to looking at the ball, right? Because he doesn't want to forget that distance. Now, there are some people probably like a Tiger Woods who you could pluck him off the Island Green at TPC Sawgrass when he hit that crazy putt, uh, bring him back a week later in the dark, and he'd remember how far it was, you know, maybe, right? But that's ability that most people don't possess. So your ability to judge effort goes way up. The probability of you correctly judging the effort goes way up if you're looking at that far target. And you mentioned the impact spot getting worse. And what people don't realize is that path and impact spot in the face don't matter at all in putting. I think it's very interesting to watch how people practice putting when they're grinding and getting that path down. When if I look at an 11 or 12 foot putt, those are the ones I usually look at in my lab because they're most discerning. And I look at the worst putters that come in and I look at their variability in path. They would miss one out of 111 footers with that path variability. <laughs> the worst putter. Well, it's all about face control of putting, right? It's like 95% of where the ball's going, it's, is it? Yeah. 87, I think Pelt said. Yeah. And it's about the same. When we talk about that 87, what's missing, that's the physics of it. But what you have to layer over that is the variability that we're going to get to those ranges. So you can say, for example, let's assume a theoretical face accounts for 87%, um, maybe as high as 95, depending on who you talk to, the direction of the ball is going to start on. But what if your variability in that was zero? Then who who cares, right? What How much it accounts for. If everybody always squared the face, then it wouldn't matter what percentage that accounted for. Or if path accounted for 10%, but our path variability was like 60 degrees, then it would, you know what I mean? Who cares that it's only 10? We're actually missing because of path. Do you know what I mean? Now that's not true. It happens that path uh, accounts for little and our variability in path is relatively tight relative to that amount. Well, that kind of sucks. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it would be better if it was the opposite. Yeah, but yeah. It would be better if it was the opposite. But, and it's the same for impact spots. So the number of putts that I sink where I visit, like actually feel a mishit. It just doesn't matter. Carlson had a paper that showed, hey, look, this is what how bad putters miss the face and this is how it affects direction and rollout. It just doesn't. In order to miss an 11-foot putt, you need to be 1.1 centimeters and for just a regular answer style putter, 1.1 centimeters of center. And I can take the worst putters in my lab and have them hit 100 putts and they'll only get one or two outside that 1.1 centimeters. So... Yes, your impact spot variability increases, but that really doesn't matter to the outcome of a putt that much. Of what you were measuring, what did improve? Variability in speed. How did face control change with that face variability? No difference in face angle, no difference in variability in in path. Interesting, looking at head movement, Timothy Lee's a big control motor learning uh, fellow in Canada. He did some putting research on head movement and found he called it allocentric, where as the putter head moves back, the head slightly moves towards the target a little bit. And then as the putter head moves forward, it slightly moves back. He found that that was correlated with better putters. So if your putter moves back and your head moves back, that's no bueno. And so that actually improves, that pattern improves when you put heads up and the variability in head position also decreases. So even though that's getting less direct, it actually shows something that's actually in terms of a movement variability, movement outcome, other than the putter a little bit farther move, but it actually improves when you put heads up, which is interesting. Your head's already up. You don't have to move it to look where the ball is, right? The ball comes into your view. One thing that I'd like to clarify 
on a breaking putt. So where I have people look at when I give them this, you know, half hour discussion on how you you hit putt heads up. This is really important. Everything you do in your routine is the same. You read the putt the same. You pick your practice swing the same. You get over the ball. Everything's the same. When you put your head down to, you know, okay, okay, face is square. And when you normally pull the putter back and hit the stroke, this is where things get different. Not until the very last moment. Instead of taking the putter back, you're like, all right, face is square to where I want it to be. Imagine a laser line coming out of the putter face. That laser line, because this is the, hopefully you've got the putter sitting at address the way you want it to be oriented at impact in terms of where the face is, right? Makes sense, <laughs> at least in your perception. So a laser line comes square out of the face. You can see it go, whew, you can imagine the ball starting in that line. Where that laser line passes closest to the hole, right? That's where you're going to stare. That spot on the green, and you're going to say, right. Now, once your eyes hit that spot close to the hole where that laser line's passing, then you're going to make your stroke and think, I'm just going to hit the ball right over that spot. So you're not staring at the hole. You're staring at your exactly. line. You're staring the at the, the a spot along the intended launch direction of the ball. It's interesting though, Sasha. I When I started heads up putting, I did it like that. Now it's weird. It's kind of morphed to the point where I actually – one of the ways that I gauge whether things are set up correctly is I look at the hole and it's really weird. Say I'm on a left or right putt that has three foot of break. Well, when I set up to it, when I look at the hole, if I'm lined up correctly, you know, three, three foot left, it'll actually feel as if I'm lined up to the hole now. And so I, I don't know whether things might change over time. And I, I, that just doesn't detract from heads up putting at all. I mean, it's just an interesting thing that I found on a personal level. I actually just test it with people. I say, well, you know, imagine rolling the ball over your line versus imagine rolling the ball towards the hole and we see which outcomes are better for that player. And then we go with that and we might evolve it over time. And most people certainly do fit into the category that you just talked about, you know, visualizing rolling it over your intended start line. It can change. I'm certainly not tied to either. I, you know, in order to do a research study, I had to like define it and give everybody the same instructions. So yeah, it made more sense to me to kind of look down the line, but certainly could be just staring at the hole the whole time might turn out to be better for some people. Maybe it's better for everybody. I don't know. I haven't done the research. The other thing that I also, you know, had to make a decision on in terms of the research to increase the internal validity is, well, if it's downhill, do you stare at a spot that's short of the hole? If it's uphill, do you stare at a spot past the hole? And, you know, I kind of was going on with what worked for me. And I always, you know, sometimes if I've got a crazy side hill, downhill, like putt that I want to hit six feet, but it's going to roll 30 feet, I will stare at a spot that's, you know, nowhere near the hole. You know what I mean? I'm trying to hit it at this spot that's like four feet out in front. But 99 times out of 100, if I'm trying to make a putt, um, I'm, you know, I'm kind of like looking around. Well, most putts are, you know, you're, they're breaking six inches, right? At the most. And your unconscious just takes care of the speed adjustment then for, for most of those parts. I'm very similar with you. If it's, if it's a real extreme downhiller, I might look at a spot closer to me. But for most of the time, I'm looking at, at the hole, just visualizing that and letting the unconscious adjust. But yeah. So for anyone who's at their wits end with their putting, perhaps, or even if you're not and, and want to experiment with it, you can give it a shot. It's very freeing because it takes away all mechanical thoughts. 
Adam and I had a discussion about putting in a podcast episode and we were of the mind that we want people to be more instinctual and less mechanical with putting in general because I think we both agree that the, the main skill to hone is, is speed control. And, and this is essentially, based on your research, enhancing that skill because you're, you're focusing more on matching the movement to the depth of the putt versus staring at it. So it makes sense intuitively. I guess my main thing is, well... I've been playing golf for 25 years. There's also like the risk reward of like, do I want to make this change? Like if I'm a decent putter already. So, I mean, that that's just golf in general, how we can drive ourselves crazy. Put it to the test, like, you know, kudos to Mike Carroll, who was like, hey, I'm a good putter, but I'm going to give this a go. 10 rounds both and let's see how it turns out. No, it's a cool, I think it's an interesting concept because it, it, it does... I like to think of golf as more, we don't think of it as an athletic game, but I believe it is. I think it it requires a lot of athletic intuition. And to me, that is something that perhaps can unlock more of that. That's actually the name of Bob Christina and Eric Alpenfeld's book is uh, Instinct Putting. They looked at it more, they, they had some of their golf schools at Pinehurst, they did it with uh, lag putting. I did mostly short makeable putts, like between 14 feet and in, but they showed that uh, you putt better with lag putts as well. So we kind of got the whole gamut covered. Yeah, I was going to say, is there a range where that you've seen if there's a drop off to it, but it seems to hold up yeah. throughout the ranges then? Some people say that they get freaked out with the short putts because they can see the ball in the hole and then they get distracted. So some people have said that and some people find that when they're, if they're hitting a 50 footer, all of a sudden it's like they might scuff it. You know, they just, whether it's practice, because you don't hit very many 50 footers. Those are some comments I hear is like, eh, I can't really do it for the super long ones. And some people say that they struggle when they can see both the ball and the hole. Well, a nice middle ground that I've found and work toward most people towards is doing the heads up as they're doing the practice swings, then setting up to the shot. That's what I do. Doing yep. the heads up once more. And just like you said with Aaron Badley, almost bringing your eyes back. And even before your eyes reach the ball, you're starting to take the putter back. There's very little time between that last look at the hole and going. I found that a nice middle ground that gets both the benefits of both, if there are benefits of both. Yeah, I've kind of changed my pre-shot routine over the years to focus more on speed, where like Adam says, my two practice strokes behind the ball are looking at the target. And I'm trying to, I'm not thinking, my focus isn't on mechanics, it's more on matching the speed. So that's been helpful for me and perhaps this would take it a step further. One other thing that I you know, would like to add is that I still visualize the curved path of the ball into the hole. So I'm not, I don't look at a putt linearly. So I still picture the ball curving into the hole. But then when I stroke the putt, I just imagine it's starting on that first part of that curve. If that makes sense. Just to clarify with people, I believe you're a plus handicap, right, Sasha? You're a pretty good player. Plus two. Nice. Yeah. And this stuff goes in with, uh, I know it's a little bit flawed, the external focuses science, but I mean, most of it backs up the same point that an external focus tends to be better for learning, performance, retention, things like that. And this is very externally focused, right? Instead of someone sitting there. And that, that's what I was going to say earlier was, you know, it used to frustrate me sometimes seeing better players and they would have like the two tees in the ground so they could swing the putter head through to make sure they're striking the exact center. Yeah. And then they'd be working on path incessantly. And while I'm sure those things are good in, in small doses, for lots of those better players, I found that they become so obsessed with less relevant 
things. And it actually started to detract. They became very internally focused now. Yeah. And started to detract and take away from things that could improve their speed control, which is obviously far more important. One thing that, to me, the single measure of how good a player's putting practice is, is how many different putts they see over the course of a week. Though most people, when I ask them that, how many different putts do you hit? No, they have no clue. Is it 50? Is it 10? Is it 200? So to me, that's the single best measure of how effective your putting practice is. When you say that, you mean different variable distances, variable breaks? Everything. Distance breaks, like literally I hit 20 putts today and there were 20 different putts. Yeah. I was going to just clarify that because someone might say, well, I hit 100 different putts a week from the same spot to the same hole. <laughs> just a different yeah. – you, you're literally meaning yeah. different places, different locations, different distances. Yeah, that's the important thing there. Yes, that's – Which, again, fits in with the motor learning science, right, of variability practice, random practice, I should say. Yeah. To me, that's probably the best way to improve your green reading as well. You know, it's it's about seeing all those different scenarios. The the value in that can't be underestimated. So it's not just practicing. Your brain has to go. Yeah, I was literally having this conversation. I keep plugging my unpublished book, but I was writing. I've been working on my book and thinking about putting practice. And I was like, I want to talk about green reading, but I feel like when you work on speed control and what you're suggesting is, you know, when, when I'm on the putting green or even playing and I'm seeing all these different lengths, breaks and seeing how the ball is reacting, like something is going on. I also use aim point. I, th- I, I believe in aim point, but I also think in general, like green reading skills kind of happen along with more of that speed control variable type practice it's like an extra side benefit is maybe the way i would describe it and you can't earn it like you can't sit at home hitting 10 foot putts on your putting mat over and over again and expect to be a good green reader or have really good speed control like those two things have to be earned on the practice screens and on the course more by seeing all those different variables and reacting to them and then hopefully adjusting for the next time that's kind of how i think about putting now not that i'm a putting guru but it's just how i've Feel I've improved my green reading skills. A huge part with putting and short game is the prediction thing. People are always working on the mechanics with the short game, and while that's important, your ability to predict what's going to happen. How you know if I give this a certain energy, is this going to roll X amount or Y amount? How much is this going to curve? And when you stand there and hit the same putt over and over again, you're not challenging the ability to predict what's going to happen. Because your first one is challenged, but then the next one is you already know what's going to happen. Yeah, you know the answer to the question. So that's why you have to kind of mix it up, move it around. And so you're challenging that prediction part of the brain again. Yep. All right. I'm going to stop there. I have more questions for you about like golf shoes and that angle of attack video. I mean, we can keep going forever. Maybe we'll, we'll definitely have you on another point, but I feel guilty that we've chewed up two and a half hours of your afternoon. I'm fine if you want to ask one more. I know you do work with FootJoy and I've actually never, I think I probably, I was at the PGA show a few years ago with a pressure mat and I'm assuming they were using your research on what shoe to fit you in. Can you just talk briefly about like, I, I know nothing about this, like how much of a difference can your golf shoe make on like the, you know, I know ground forces and all that stuff is important, but like, I don't know anything about it. So maybe you could touch on it quickly. 
about two strokes over the course of four rounds. If you were to wear the best pair of shoes for you versus the worst pair of shoes for you, it would amount to two strokes gained. Uh, Everything I do, whether it's putting or drivers or shoes, I try to boil it down to strokes gained. So when someone comes in the lab and they hit, you know, 18 drives in this pair of shoes and 18 drives in that pair of shoes, what was the difference in their strokes gained? So you could say about $10 million or so. <laughs> yeah, <really> level. <laughs> e- e- exactly. It's an expensive pair of shoes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so the, to the average person that's getting lost in the fuzz and the, you know, who cares, especially if they're more comfortable or whatever. But yeah, to a tour player, it's probably going to matter a lot. So to kind of summarize, I guess, that stream of research, so that, that we, the FootJoy had uh, was called the FootJoy Performance Fitting System with the, the body track mat. And so this was kind of how I first got on with FootJoy uh, doing research with them was I said, hey, uh, I was at the PGA show maybe 10 years ago now, and I would have golfers come in to do research in my lab and they'd have their muddy shoes on, you know, from the fall, like they played their last round in November. And then I'd you know, come on in December and I was like, oh God, they're making a mess in my lab. You know, golf shoes are not easy to clean, right? So I went down, so I had some bad experiences. And then I went down to the PGA show and I was talking to FootJoy and I was like, look, you guys send me some shoes <laughs> so my lab doesn't get muddy and I, you know, I'll, I'll collaborate with you on some of the findings. So they said, sure, what model do you want? And I was like, you know what, why don't you send me two models? And I was doing some driver research. So the first study I did, I had the participants hit blocks of seven drivers. And I thought, you know what, I can switch up the shoes as well so they can perform. So it was four blocks of seven. So I had participant one do the first 14 drives in one model of FootJoy and the second 14 drives in another model. Participant two switched the shoe order. So they'd start with a different pair. And I asked, you know, hey, give me your most structured pair and your most, what I turned at the time, mobile pair. And ran the strokes gain analysis. And it seemed that there was about a third of the participants showed a meaningful difference towards the structure, a third meaningful difference towards the mobile, and a third it didn't matter. And statistically significant. So if you hit 14 for someone who's below a 10 handicap, 14 drives, you can compare two conditions. There's enough meaning in the data there statistically where you could say, yes, this is statistically significant or not. If you get less than that or handicap increases, then it kind of gets challenging. So then I said, hey, uh, you know what? I think there's something here. Let's try two different models of shoes. We'll go both in this case. I said, let's go both spikeless, but one structured, one mobile. And Footjoy is a great partner to work with because they've got so many models of shoes. So again, we find the same pattern and then we did, so like, all right, well, maybe, uh, maybe this guy's worth listening to. So I uh, designed a study for them to implement. They had the, at the time they called their analysis center, the shoe box, which made sense. It was a little simulator room. And I had worked out, the idea was, okay, I know there's differences here, but how can I get at these differences? What is it? Adam swings really well and stru- performs really well in structure. John performs really well in mobile. What is it about their swings? Can I predict who would perform better in either pair of shoes in, in a non-invasive way? I don't kind of set up everybody with markers or wires. At the time I was doing research with body track. So what if we just put them on the body track mat, you know, and I came out with this list of probably 150 variables, everything from range of center of pressure, speed that the center of pressure shifted, time of downswing. Because not only do we have the body track mat, we also had a camera hooked up to the iPad. So we got some 
some other data as well. And I used a type of analysis called the discriminant function analysis, which says, okay, we know these golfers perform better in structured, these golfers perform better in mobile. What is it about, is there some pattern in these variables that allows us to figure out who's going to perform better in what shoot, discriminant function analysis. So you come up with an equation. And if the equation, just to simplify it, if you plug all those variables in and it comes out to a, a negative 10, then it means you're really good in the mobile. It comes out to a positive 10, you're really good in the structure. You don't use all 150, boil it down to just a few that are going to make it easy to collect, but also give you the best differentiation. Fortjoy ran the study on a couple of hundred people. They just sent me the math data. So they had the simulator data where they were looking at performance. They just sent me the math data though. And then I had to predict who was going to perform better in what shoe. And we got about a, an 89% match. So I was like, hey, great. We can actually fit shoes using this procedure, the foot joint performance fitting system. From a logistical standpoint, tough to implement. So the idea was let's put it in vans or their idea was put it in vans, drive it around. Didn't really pan out, but in theory still works quite well. So what specifically... Like, let's say the structured shoe was better for me versus the mobile shoe. Like, what could I expect to see, like, tangibly in, in driver results? Is it, is it an increase in swing speed, control over my body more for other stuff in the swing? Different players, different things. But I would look at more from a more global perspective in terms of strokes gained off the tee. So, you know, when you look at 14 drives, 14 dots, even if you do a driver fitting and you go, okay, here are 14 dots for club A, 14 dots for club B. You're like, well, I drove my two furthest were with club A, but I also had two out of bounds with club A. You're like, which, which of these dispersions is better? So what I do is calculate a strokes gain for all those 14 drives. And so maybe you hit it, a, one player hit it a little bit longer, another player hit it a little bit straighter overall a little bit longer and straighter, I guess, for the majority. But your strokes gained off the tee would be better with that particular type of shoe. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, because I mean, strokes gained is essentially the combination of distance yeah. and accuracy. And sometimes if you're one of the great takeaways I've gotten from Mark Brody's research is certainly that like, yes, distance matters, but you cannot play golf with too many penalty strokes off the tee. So you can hit a bunch of great drives and then a few of them can erase all of that good work. That is interesting. So so I guess the takeaway is everyone should go buy a pair of those square shoes. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I will make you answer that. That was just a joke. Is there any rule of thumb? I know not everyone's going to be able to like, I guess the logistics of it is the biggest challenge is like, who's going to have access to the pressure mat and say like, oh, get the shoe. So like, is there anything that someone listening to this could do on their own to figure out if a structured or more mobile shoe is appropriate for them? Yeah, for sure. If you are someone who, you know, initially I didn't, you have some, some of the variables you put in there into that, you know, dump them into the model that you're like, this could make sense intuitively, but you're like, I care less about a prediction that makes sense, which is usually what you do in research and more like how you predict stuff in the stock market. Like, well, I don't care if, you know, general electric stock goes up 10 days after it rains. Uh, you know, I don't need to understand why, but if I know if it rained in 10 days, I'm going to, you know, who cares, right? So that's kind of the approach that we took. But after the fact, you can make sense of the variables. So one of them, you get pushed towards mobile if you're someone that has a big range of center of pressure movement in the downswing. So that means like at impact, you've got a lot of your pressure on your lead foot. These are people like a Jordan Spieth, I mean, even into the follow through, I should say, who roll over their lead ankle. Those people are better in a mobile shoe predominantly because 
it's very uncomfortable with a structured shoe to roll over that lead ankle. They almost will then choose to swing in a way where they don't get into that position. And that is not helpful for their swing, if that makes sense. So if you picture like a, like if your foot was strapped to a two by four, like a small 12 inch long two by four, and you're like, okay, feels pretty good. But then you go to like, you get right to the edge of that two by four. And then all of a sudden like clunk, clunk, it's very uncomfortable. Whereas if it's a piece of soft, cushy foam under there, you can kind of just gradually roll over the edge and there's not that asymptote kind of harsh line where it's you know digital. It's either you're flat and then it flips over and you're on the edge. And even someone like an Adam Scott would be better in structure because he gets all the way to the lead side, but he never really rolls over on that the outside of his lead foot. So that's range towards that side. Um, people who have limited center of pressure movement actually benefit slightly from mobile as well in towards their trail side. So it actually helps them move a little bit more, helps separate the, generate more angular momentum in the system. We don't need to get into that. Faster downswing time was a big predictor that tends to be uh, associated with um, more violent forces in transition. So that trail foot needs to be in a more stable shoe. An easy predictor of that was how quick is your downswing. Someone like John Rahm would have been fit into a more structured shoe because he's got a very fast, quick downswing. Rory would be the same. Justin Thomas is someone who would get fit into a structured shoe. We did a really neat study, actually, to validate this with tour pros at Sea Island. It would have been five years, four or five years ago now where they hit on the body track and we had the quad running. And, you know, as they're warming up on the Wednesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they come over and hit 14 drives and 14 drives and then run the analysis to see which shoe they perform better. And luckily, the vast majority of staff players are in the correct shoe. But also, there was, a, again, a strong 90% match to the player to the data we get out of the map predicted the shoe they should be in and that aligned with the quad data as well. You're looking at best a half a stroke per round if you go from the worst shoe to the best shoe. It's important. It can be important. Yeah, it's not the end of the world to the normal player. I think maybe perhaps a shoe that's more, if you're especially if you're walking the course, more comfortable to walk in. Any thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, look, I'm biased toward foot joy, but I think what I like about them is that they've got so many models that you should be able to find a shoe that's comfortable for you to walk in and is either structured or mobile. And then now they've got them, they're waterproof too. It used to be that, oh yeah, you're better in a mobile shoe. Can't play that in Canada. There's no spikes in my feet or so. But now they've got uh, that kind of option as well. Anyway. So with structured or mobile, it's, uh, I was initially thinking of the sole of the shoe being quite flexible, but you could also talk about the sides of the shoe as well. If you're talking about like a, a speeth rolling onto his ankle. is So do you look at both parts of that? Yeah, and that's uh, one thing that I've been doing a lot of with FootJoy more recently is um, developing their team there, parameterizing shoes the way drivers are parameterized. So doing research with Ping, it's not about how does Model A compare to Model B. It's how does a deeper center of gravity compare to a shallow center of gravity? How does a thinner face compare to a thicker face? How does turbulators compare to not turbulators? Whereas early research with FootJoy was, you know, what about this shoe model versus that shoe model? And it would be like, well, this is generally stiffer. Whereas now it's like, okay, you've got torsional stiffness, you've got flexion stiffness, you've got the stiffness of the different properties. So it's now, okay, which of these 10 parameters matter the most for the fitting? Which can we change? Things like even heel lift matter a great deal. So yeah, to your point, Adam, when I say mobile versus structure, there's a lot of 
elements that go into that and it's figuring out which stiffness elements are the most important when determining what is a structure, what is a, a more mobile shoe. Interesting. Never thought about that before. <laughs> all right. We haven't talked about swing speed, all the other research you've done, but we'll have to have you back on again in the future, Sasha, if you're willing, of course, if you enjoyed your time with us. <laughs> sure. I should mention the stack. Yeah, no, we yeah, want you yeah, to, that's a, we, we gave Marty the same opportunity. You, you shared some shared some of your knowledge with us. So give yourself a plug to the stack system, which is certainly getting more and more popular. Yeah. So it's a speed training system. I call the, we call the variable inertia speed training system comes with an app, which is I think the biggest differentiator. So from a science standpoint, we've now got over 4,000 users. So I've got this mat, several research projects running unbeknownst to the, the users, but all to benefit them. So this is where the AI aspect uh, is really kicking the high gear. Tough to do AI if you don't have the data, but now looking at, okay, well, we've got all these participants who are, you, you know, resting for this long, choosing to right now choosing to rest for this long versus participants who are sticking to the rest. Well, how are their changes in speed? Who's we've got different programs. Do 65 year olds respond better to this program versus 25 year olds, people who already start with faster swing speed. So I'm really digging into that. And, and it's actually the AI is already in there kind of automatically working the same as my genetic algorithm would work to say, right, what muscle, you know, try, let's try this muscle coordination strategy what's clubhead speed? Well, let's try this next one. Did clubhead speed go up? The software can slightly tweak variables. We know it would still be beneficial, you know, like 15 seconds rest versus 10 second rest, but maybe Adam's program is a little bit different than John's program, but I've got 50 Adams and 50 Johns and the app is tracking their progress. And now we know that 10 seconds is better than 15 seconds. What happens if you swing lighter weights before you swing heavier weights? These are studies that are really tough to do, right? It would take forever to be like, okay, let's get 30 people. Let's track them. But because we have so many people collecting good data, the programs are going to get better and better, which is pretty cool. So I might come back and look at the app in five years and be like, huh, I can't believe this was the... <laughs> This was the best program for a 25-year-old who was already swinging at 110 miles per hour and his blonde hair and green eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people find out more about the stack? Thestacksystem.com. You can check us out on Instagram. My wife does all our social media and she's really good at it. I keep getting impressed by how well she puts those Instagram little snippets together. Yeah, we know it works. You know, we've got 4,000 people. Uh, everybody's increasing speed. We've got so many tour players now using it that are that are getting uh, faster. Andrew Putnam's put on a ton of speed. Luke Donald actually did a stack session the Friday of the Sony and went from T28 to T18th on Saturday. So it's low volume and it's adaptable to what you're trying to do in terms of increasing speed, whether you're, you know, in the middle of a, a tournament or middle of a season, or if you're in the off season, trying to put in a little bit more work. Well, I mean, next time we have you on, I mean, you are one of the top experts on swing speed and we really didn't touch on that at all. So, you know, we'll certainly have to get into that one in the next episode. So yeah, check out the stack. We've had Marty Jertson, your, your co-founder on before sharing some good info with us. Anywhere else people can find you, Sasha, your research and all that stuff follow me on Twitter at Sasha McKenzie. That's, I, you know, I'm terrible at social media, but every once in a while I'll put something out that's worth uh, listening to, I think. Your 3D model videos are very cool. We'll have to talk about some of those the next time also. 
anyway, thank you for your, gosh, almost three hours of time. We deeply appreciate it. <laughs> Hopefully somebody gets something out of it. All right, we'll wrap it up there. Adam, where can they find you? You can find me, adamyounggolf.com. The program that would relate to this the most would be Next Level Golf or the Swing Plan as well. We'll go through some of the stuff that Sasho goes through. and I'll, I'll do some drills in there as well. I'll link that to Sasho. But yeah, it was really good to have that information. It's awesome. Thank you again, Sasho. And John, where sure. can people find you? You can find me at practical-golf.com. And if you are working on your swing speed, you could always get a launch monitor from me like the PRGR or the swing caddies. So you can check it out on our deals section. And I do want to thank our sponsor, the Indoor Golf Shop. You can find all of your indoor golf needs at their website, shopindoorgolf.com. They're the experts when it comes to the indoor golf simulator for your home or business. You can give them a call, get help from their guys, Brian and Wade. They will help you purchase the best launch monitor for your budget and guide you through the different technology and how you can become a better player. So thanks again for their support and you can find them at shop indoor golf and we will see you next time with another episode.